Well, I'm so glad that you're here, man, as I'm looking forward to get to know you better. Yeah, thanks for I the hear invite. good things from Jason Turcott. Yeah. What a beauty. Yeah. How, how did that relationship come about? Um, well, I've known Jason, so he's the president of our company now, and I've known, I've known him since we were about five or six, no, probably six or seven years old, so we played hockey in North Van together, and uh, if you grow up on North Van, in North Van like I did, um, you just know everybody, right? So your past just cross. He's, you know, good friends with some of my good friends. And, um, two years ago, I realized as a company that we were going in a direction where we were getting, we we're going to get pretty big. Like I, I refer to our company, our development company as like a startup company that we have been acquiring land and going to get bigger and bigger. And so I knew that I needed somebody that had uh, the right type of experience and more experience than I had as far as running the sales uh, and and running a development company um, and somebody that would be adding to uh, the team and making up for where I don't have the kind of right skills. So I uh, I actually thought there's probably like three people in the city that I figured that I think would be a really good fit for our company. Um, and I and he was the uh, he was the number one guy that I first went after. Really, and fortunately, um, after you know a few months of talking, he said yes. Um, Amazing. So it was a big hire. It was you know present to the company, and you know I at that time was the president of the company. My father's still involved with the business as well, um, and I knew it was like a good, it was going to be really important about that relationship piece and having my father be part of that discussion and decision on okay, we're going to bring in like the the you know the captain of the team kind of thing. And if my dad wasn't on board with it, and if there was going to be a personality conflict, then it would be, um, it, w- it would just be, it would fail from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so he, I brought him into that discussion pretty It early felt like it fit. I mean, you know him a long time. Yeah, I knew him a long time. And I knew that, uh, I knew like with his experience at Cressy, obviously he like, he's, he's had the knowledge, he's got the ability. He was also lived on the North shore. We're both the same age. Um, you know, so that checked a bunch of the boxes. Um, and I trust was a key thing. I knew I could trust him. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was the right, definitely the right fit. Um, but you never really know until somebody like starts on day one, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah. But you good character there, which, you know, solves a lot of the problems. It does. You know, I, uh, you know, again, like with a family business and a, like the father son dynamics, my father started the company with another business partner and, um, when I came into the company, I've been working, well, I've been working in, for the company since I was like 13 years old. Um, but the, I'm the second generation, right? And so there's all these stories about like what, you know, fathers and sons that work well together or the, like it goes terribly, terribly wrong. Um, and so it was, uh, it was key that, that this was going to be somebody that could like fit really well and understand that kind of like unique fina- family dynamic. But sometimes he acts as like a, a mediator, a moderator, or something um, to 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 see the bigger picture and mm-hmm. the emotions to the side. But uh, I did say to him recently, like the, one of the things that I value the most, uh, actually, about him joining the company is that, that how my relationship and my father's relationship has been since then. Oh no! Um, way. It's you know it's, it's the, the strongest it's probably ever been since we worked together. Just because we have that president of the company that is just such a a good fit within our, yeah. within our family. And you and your dad can agree on just blaming him completely for yeah, that's what we did. everything that's going wrong at all <laughs> well, times. It's not our fault anymore. It was, it was hey, him. Dad, don't you agree with me? Yeah, we, we agree. <laughs> it's his fault. Yeah. You know what amazing experience you got with Norm Cressy and Scott Cressy. Yeah. That's so relevant. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. And I think like every, each company is different and that, you know, Cressy, you know, is a massive, massive company and, um, you know, has a huge portfolio of, you know, rental. Uh, rental. Um, so I think that, you know, that's our goal as our company. I think we have maybe like 4 million square feet of rental in the pipeline that we're going to be developing wow. over the next, um, say five to 10 years. And so our goal is to become a, you know, have a good significant cash flow company and um you look at the other you know family companies or other companies in british columbia you know when it's like the bd they have that good stable income portfolio for like markets like now where you don't have to develop you don't have to build because you've got good income portfolio um you know same thing with ani and cressy and um so that's what we were kind of working towards so if we had somebody that had already seen what we need to do as a company that it was you know bring them on. Right. Did I tell you that it was John Stavell who suggested that you come on the show? Oh, really? Yeah. He was, <laughs> he has this idea and this is part of the series, the sons of anarchy. He calls <laughs> it. And I'm curious about why he chose anarchy. And I know what he means by sons. He, he's yeah. interested in, in, uh, and he wants, um, people to know more about this very exciting second generation of leadership and mm-hmm. these, these big and growing development companies. And he, he named a few, you know, exceptional sort of second generation leaders like yourself and that, uh, that ought to share with people kind of like, what's the dynamic, like mm-hmm. what's the difference. And this makes me curious about his choice of words for anarchy. Like, what was it like for your dad starting the company and, and was it, was it anarchy? Was it, or was anarchy reflect like the change probably in the leadership style? Cause, cause I think it's, he's suggesting, and I believe it's probably true. It's very different the yeah. way your dad ran things to get things going and, and where you're taking the company now and mm-hmm. sort of this more modern world. Yeah. I mean, um, how we run things like the day to day, actually like what we produce or how we have systems in place is a little bit different, but I think we, it, like my dad and I, um, have lunch almost once a week and we were talking last Friday about this, um, kind of like venting a little bit about the industry, but our style and, and our core values have never changed and they're exactly the same. Like we've, we've always taken this approach. Okay. We want to treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And that sounds like such a, you know, cop out, but that's, we've found this with like recently in the industry is that like people are, um, the people that we want to do business with are the type of people that we can like sit down, have that conversation, something happens and you didn't expect it to happen. Um, so that's something that I learned from him. We've always felt that way, whether it's staff or like people who we're building for or development partners, we have the best relationships have been those where our partners have treated us the way that we'd want to be treated. So our, that core value has never changed, but my dad started the company in 1987 and we were a, a, a construction company. He came from a big, uh, general contractor, um, where he actually, I can see the, you know, Canada Harbor place from here. That's why we moved to BC. It was to, he was, um, you know, one of the lead guys in Canada Harbor place. Um, but he wanted to start up his own company and be like in control of his own future. And so, um, it was kind of just decide, okay, we're, I'm going to be a contractor and start off small and start building for, um, you know, some of the clients that they had at that time, the first project they did was a little, an addition to the Burnaby North canopy. Like it was a, then Burnaby North high school canopy. It was such a small project, yeah. but then it kind of like built and built and built from there. Um, but so there, as, as far as like the difference between how we run it today versus the beginning, um, I think that the construction world has changed. Um, it's, far more technical. It, we're, we're not building anything any faster and there's way more people that are involved. Um, and there's a lack of 
um, like significant lack of like goods quality trades and labor uh, across the board. So it's way, way more hands-on. You got to have the right systems. You got to have reporting. And it's not like it used to be when he started the company as yeah. far as the reports. Because of the scale too, right? Not just the time. Yeah, because of the scale. I mean, we like, we, our, our history with the, um, the company is that we were a contractor up until about 2007. So like the first 20 years of our company. And then I came into his office. I said, I think we should, you know, we were looking around to, for more office space. And I said, I think we should build it, buy a site and develop it. And we'll, and we'll have our office building there, sell off the rest. So I, so, um, that was like the start of us thinking about becoming a developer. Um, and that's when we created our development division right before 2008, which was a really good experience. <laughs> yeah, perfect timing. <laughs> it was perfect timing. We did. We also said, like I said, I think we should be a developer and we just buy real estate. He's like, we're just a, we're a dumb contractor. What do we know about what do we know about real estate developments? I'm like, I don't know. When I was 27, I'm like, but I'm gonna go find out. Yeah. So then I I ended up uh, calling as many like CEOs or presidents of companies to say, if you were to start a development company today. Um, what would you do? Like, what lesson could you teach me? Good idea. And um, I, it was surprising how many people would give me the opportunity to sit down and ask them these questions. Um, every major CEO or president of any development company in the city like did that. Wow. And I would always, I would always say, oh, I just met with Warren McAllister, and he told me that I got to speak to you. So I'd always like, you know, use the previous person as a bit of an end to get another yeah. coffee or lunch. Um, but the, the, and the best advice I got that's most applicable was by a guy that started at Mosaic, um, homes, uh, Ron McCarthy. And, uh, he said, just be the best at one thing. Figure out what that is. Be the best at one thing. Yeah. So that's, that's the polygon mindset. Yeah. And, and uh, well demonstrated with Mosaic, obviously. Yeah. And it, it's a, I said, well, Rob, what are you, what are you guys the best? He's like, we're the best townhouse builders. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can't be the best townhouse builder. I got to figure out something else. <laughs> He'd say you could try. You could try. No, but we, then we just said, okay, well, as I was driving back, it was on uh, to the North shore. Then I was like, well, we could build anything. Cause as a contractor in BC, we've built, you know, bridges, high rises, schools, viaducts, like townhomes, you, like everything. So I'm like, well, why don't we just buy land in one area? And that's when we kind of just started with, okay, let's just buy property on the North shore and, and see where it goes from there. And we'll just build whatever we can get, uh, whatever we can use the land for. So that's, that's, that's your niche. You are the North shore guys, the North shore guys. So you're going to yeah. be the best at the North shore. Yeah. And I, I mean, now, like, I don't even know how to define that as being the best. Yeah, what is the, the best? Shore. It's your definition, right? It's our de yeah. definition of being the best but it allowed us to be really focused yeah. like, on just one thing. So anytime we would get like an opportunity or broker would say, Hey, I got this project in or this site in Burnaby. I'll just say, well, like last time I checked, Burnaby's not in North Van. So I'm sorry. I'm not interested. Yeah. Is it uh, city district and West Van too? Yeah. 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 The, anything from like deep Cove to Horseshoe Bay, yeah. um, we would look at, um, and we didn't have a lot of money. Like we, when we started, when I, you know, said to my dad, okay, I think, I think we got an opportunity. We should look at investing some of the capital we built up in the construction company and put into real estate as a contractor, when you're, especially when you're doing fixed price contracts, you need to have like bonding. And, um, when we were doing the scale that we were doing at the time is that you basically, you kept all your money in the company. So I think we probably it, it, to get into the development business, we might've spent like 200 grand to invest in, to kick it off. And not so, much. no, it's not much like, that's not even like a deposit for a property right yeah. now. 
So I was like, okay, well, we got 200 grand. So what are we going to do? So what year I, was that? That was 2007. Yeah. And uh, so they, um, so what I, it forced me to do is to be really, really creative with land. And so we would go, I would um, like tie up properties or do land. Land assemblies were really good then. You can't do them much now, but I did a bunch of land assemblies. When I got them all bundled up, then I would bring in a partner like, um, or, you know, sell the site off. Um, so that would slowly build up more and more capital. And then we got, um, more creative. Like we did a big land exchange with the city of North Van. We built them a new operation center. They gave us their site for 300,000 square feet of residential. And we, um, uh, uh sold that site to Adira. And then we did a, a really tough land assembly that, uh, on the waterfront in North Vancouver of industrial land. We assembled 12 or 15 properties and traded that with Port Metro Vancouver, which was probably the largest land exchange that we're aware of, we traded um, it for about 39 acres of land that the port owns. Wow. So we just, we just had to get creative and yeah, that's really creative. Otherwise, like we just didn't have the money. Like if we, it, it'd be, <laughs> I actually, we probably wouldn't be as good as we are now. If we simply had a hundred million dollars that great, we're going to start a development company. We were forced to be like really, really, really smart on how do we get real estate opportunities. Interesting. And we, and we never, I think we actually have bought, two sites that were listed on the market, everything else we did a sole source negotiation. Sounds like you got the, the land acquisition part of the thing and your relationships with those brokers and stuff pretty dialed. Yeah. Like the, I mean, maybe if I was to go back and give advice to all those CEOs and presidents that I was talking to, I would say like, I'm, I'm surprised that the owners of companies aren't the land acquisition guys. So that's my main job, which is why, you know, it's good to have, you know, uh, Jason Tercott is the president of the companies that it allows me to be a little bit more focused on what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And I think structuring those creative land opportunities is like, that's my strength. Yeah. Um, but you know, we would, I would call up a broker and I would say, okay, I want to go after this apartment building. If we get it, we'll write an unsolicited offer and I'll pay a commission. So he knew that he had a commission deal lined up right there. Or if there was a broker that was about to get a listing, they would call us up, say, Hey, we got the site thinking about listing it um, if you're interested. And then I would write an offer and have the deposit posted like that day. And in comparison, if you have an acquisitions division, there's somebody that's reviewing it, analyzing it, figuring out every reason, reason why you shouldn't do it or giving, or, or, you know, giving that report to a VP who's then going to go to the president and say, I think we should write an offer. Well, that mm. could have taken a week. By that time, I already got the site under contract. Yeah. Speed. Speed, yeah. Yeah. Because it... <laughs> One broker told me, uh, he's like, well, he's now, he's a very senior broker. He's like, the brokers want to make it's as, um, their commission as quick as possible with as little headaches. So just make sure if you write an offer that you close and that you, but you need to be able to get that offer in front of them right away and move fast yeah. before anybody else does. Yeah. So we did. What a great key to success. I mean, it, it is surprising that more president principles of major development companies don't focus on that. Yeah. I had a developer sitting on that table right there last week telling me, reminding me, um, you know, that the most, most of the money in development comes with the land acquisition. Mm -hmm. It's not actually the exit or the sale. Yeah. You know, it's on the buy, you know, right piece of dirt structure. Exactly. Right yeah. And so why that's, that's exactly right. And so then as soon as you buy the site, then you got entitlements. So there's a bit of risk there, but then you've got your you know, construction costs, sale price. And then from there, but the, the, the fixed number is what you paid for the land. You can't fix You can't make it any cheaper unless you somehow got lucky and got yeah, more density. Out totally. Of it. 
I'm also reminded of uh, another story of old in the industry and sort of explaining um, the psychology of developers to our team and to other people that have been curious that people think of real estate developers as cowboys, you know, huge risk takers in terms of understanding their mindset and stuff. And in reality, uh, that is true, but only for the first step, only for the land acquisition. And the reality that, that I've experienced is that from that point, forward or afterwards, um, every decision, most every decision is about averting risk or minimizing risk. Yeah. You know, you're trying to take risk. You take that big risk when you buy the land and then you spend the rest of the years taking risk off the table, mm -hmm. maximizing the opportunity and trying to de-risk it as much as you possibly can. So it makes perfect sense that the, you know, the principal of the company is very involved in both the biggest opportunity to make money in this business, which is a land acquisition and the hugest, uh, risk part of the equation. Yeah. And the part that where, I mean, speed and quick decisions, you know, are, are critical to success. Yeah. And I, th I think it's, you know, if it is the owner's ultimate decision that they, like for me, I wanted to be involved with all the thought process because then it just gave me the confidence that, okay, we're making the right decision that we're going to be able to buy this property and have, you know, get an apartment building approved on there. And then I, I do, I look at the revenues a lot. Like I, I think I probably read some of these, you know, some of the sites that report some of the revenues and the current stats more than anybody else, because I just wanted to know more about this market. So that when that broker called me up and said, Hey, I've got a site on Lonsdale for, we're thinking of like listing it at 250 bucks a square foot. And I would say, okay, well, what do you build? What, you know, what is it? And if it's a you know, six story wood frame, then I'd be like, okay, I can in probably in about five minutes, I could say what my price would be because yeah. I wouldn't, because I would know, you know, right now it's probably trending. You could sell a six story wood frame, you know, condo for 1200 bucks a square foot. You know, it's going to cost you 430 a square foot to build it. So you're probably looking at a land price is somewhere in North of like 200, I could probably make 240 to 250 bucks a square foot work. And so you, so that if we do that that quick, then that's what they want. They want that. Too. Oh, totally. Another benefit of specialization geographically, right? Exactly. Because yeah. you can't do that possibly for every market. No. And you become a known entity, you become like the first call, not of one particular agent, but you know, of all the top agents in that market, they're active. Mm -hmm. They want to get a deal done. Well, and then if they have to report to their client, like of who they've gone out to and if our name's not on the list, then they're going to say, well, why? Because we know Darwin's bought, you know, a site in yeah, they have on Lonsdale, like, well, we got to present that opportunity to them at least. Um, so it's been, you know, it's, it, it's been, we were very creative. Like the, the number of like apartment buildings we've bought that we've known somebody that's been a family member or we, uh, kind of solved their problems for why they weren't selling was, or, or we just give them an offer and they say, we're not ready. And then in three or four years time, all of a sudden mm -hmm. they call us and say, we're ready. Mm -hmm. Um, is like that 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 that's been a really key important part to the success of our company has been on that acquisition on the land side yeah and staying one market cool yeah. makes perfect sense i can see it you know clear as day you're thinking when you were 27 your approach with the other you know leaders of development companies choosing your niche not with a product type like rob mccarthy's uh, yeah. story that he shared but uh instead with uh geography especially as the dynamic and the relationships with the cities have become so important. Yeah. You know, you have fewer of those to manage fewer in which you can invest more Yeah, to which you're more of a known entity. That's smart. Yeah. I mean, at one point in the district of North Van, we had about 
three and a half million square feet in the zoning application stage. And so if you speak to the planning department or speak to some council members before a project goes towards a public hearing, for example, is that you can have a conversation with them about a few of the different sites. Um, but I, I think that like actually given that scale, that has probably hurt us a little bit for relationships such as the district of North Van, where uh, a few of the past council members have said to me, like, you're doing so much in one neighborhood. Oh. And, um, you know, why do you have to do so much? I said, well, if it wasn't me, it would be, you know, it's three or four developers that would do um, all these projects. But I think that our we some of the council members uh, got pressure that we were kind of like trying to do too special. much in that municipality. Yeah. Do they worry that optically it might look like you've got some sort of special situation with the city or the district? Well, I think it's like, so the district of North Van, which is a little bit, you know, they don't, for years they've been trying to like reduce the amount of growth that's happening in the municipality. So if they have one developer that's coming forward with so much repeatedly, they're just kind of saying, you know, kind of feeling like stop trying to densify and change the community. And it's like, it's an, it's an, an annoyance for them. I think yeah. that we kept showing up and um, <laughs> I said, well, like, isn't it good that I, like I live in deep cove, like my company's head office is in the district of North Van. We've built, you know, 25 projects in the district of North Van, like then you have somebody that's local. that's actually like I've, of anybody, I've got to be so accountable for what we end up building Yeah, because I got to live in this community. So yeah. like having somebody that's that accountable is, is I see that as a positive, right? Yeah. Did they? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Why not? And what's the rationale? Um, I think like I get people that ask us saying, what's the, you know, um, you know, you, we do projects in the district of North Vancouver and the city of North Vancouver. And what's the difference? I said, obviously the councils, there's a different makeup composition of the two councils, but the city of North Vancouver, most people that live in the city of North Vancouver, um, live in apartment buildings like it. Cause it's more dense. It's got the amenities there. Um, and so the, and the demographic the, in the, the of the average resident in the district in the city of North Van is pretty low, like maybe, um, maybe 40 might be the average age. Um, District of North Vancouver is primarily single family residential homes. And there's probably, I think 24% of the population over the age of 65. So those people, they just don't really want much to change. Yeah. Right. Like it's scary. Change is scary for people. Um, so those, those, and the majority of people that vote at elections are, are over the age of 65 as well. So the, those council members are just representing what the voice is within their community, which is, you know, we don't want change. Focus density in the city, not in, in our neighborhoods in the district of North Vancouver. So is it a surprise that it's more difficult to get a project approved in the district of North Van when you've got, you know, seven council members that are voted based on a body of people that don't want change to happen? Mm. I mean, it's not a surprise. Mm -hmm. So it makes your job way more difficult when you try to get a project approved. Yeah, I see that. That sucks in terms of your niche, <laughs> your North Shore <laughs> niche. And it just makes me uh, wonder if there's a, you know, the point where, you know, cannibalization is a thing, mm -hmm. you know, in business where you, you get, you know, optically or whatever, or in reality, a little bit big and you start cannibalizing yourself. Yeah. You know, you go to all this work to be North Shore and develop the relationships that make you successful there. And at a certain point, you're too successful, mm -hmm. you know, and they, like you said, get sick of you. Yeah. And yeah, I think that there was a period of time that it was going that way, but then, it, then you just, um, you know, it's kind of about what are you building? So like we were, again, our, our plan was early on to build up this rental portfolio and, and we were kind of like, 
trying to make the municipalities understand there's a massive shortage of rental housing. Um, and we were, we were seeing that since 2007, we gave them reports in 2010. Um, they didn't really care to listen. Um, and now I think that the, you know, the, the, the message is getting through to municipalities. Like we got to build more the idea of like supply and demand, which is very, very true. Um, but I did say like, we shouldn't be building, don't just build a whole bunch of new condos and think that we're going to help with our rental issue. Um, the district has, I think my lifetime only built maybe two or three purpose-built rental buildings, like in 43 years, like that's crazy. Like mm -hmm. how have we, and you're surprised that rents in the, in the district and the city of North Van are the highest in the country. Yeah. Shouldn't be surprised. No, no. So it's, um, telling them that is, it, it, it's, <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah. How do you word that? Yeah. Yeah. I think you, you kind of used facts and information. Now the next one that I'm kind of on about, cause an area that our company is going to start to get invested in is in uh, a seniors, uh, assisted living and memory care facilities. So that's then the, the, what I'm trying to educate this, these councils, including the city of, of North Van and district of West Van is there's just, there's this massive shortage of care facilities, um, on, in throughout BC. And I think that there's going to be this realization that we're, we're falling very short on the amount of product that's, um, that we have available. I think yeah. that the, to, uh, on the North shore, there's 40,000 seniors over the age of 65 and there's only 411 assisted living memory care beds. That doesn't seem like enough. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so oh, wow. we say, okay, well you need some more and then say, okay, well, yeah. And it, and it takes forever. Like it'll take, you know, it takes five or six years to build a new yeah. building. So yeah, you're going to try to address the issue, but it's not still not going to be enough. No, no, definitely not. I have a friend in that business in case you want to talk with more people about it before you jump into it. I do. I imagine you, yeah, I bet you do. I bet that's, that's your style. It makes sense. Talk to as many people as you can, right? Yeah. Although the seniors housing market is like, it's like running a hotel. So we would never run the facilities. Oh, you we would, do the we would just partner. I no. We, so we would, we have the land where we know they could be built. And so we would build them. Maybe I'd like to hold on to having an ownership because I think they're good income properties. Um, but we would never start up a, a care facility company. So we would partner with one of the, the bigger companies that's got plenty of experience in doing that. I see. Yeah. I see. So the right partner for you is the operator that that's willing to, you know, share the real estate side, I guess, right? Yeah. Focus on operations. Yeah. Like, and you know, going to partnerships, like every deal that we have since we started the company, we have partners on. Oh yeah. But we, so our average deals, we put in 25% of the equity and we'd have a, another partner put in 75% of the equity. We decided that in, that was intentional in the beginning because we found more land deals and we had money. So we thought, okay, for us to not say no to a good land deal, what do we have to have partners? Yeah. So we started taking on a, a bunch of different types of partnerships and, um, and that's how we operate today too. That's cool. Okay, that's a whole skill unto itself. Yeah. I, I, I actually don't like that side of the partner, the, the business. Cause it's hard. Um, I think it's just, uh, the, the hardest part about it is finding that partner that is really aligned with your decision-making and your outlook on the project. So we've had some partners that they all they cared about was, it was obvious that they just want to make as much money on this deal as possible. Um, and so some of the decisions we would make weren't just going to be to maximize the profits. They would be to, because we think it could make the community better or make it a little bit better project or, you know, or how are we treating that 
you know, how are we treating the vendor, for example? Plus, you have to shepherd the Darwin brand. Exactly. We can't have that impacted. So that's kind of, that's one of the negative sides to having partners. The positive side is, is it's the de-risking. So like in markets like today, then you've got, you're, you're significantly de-risking your investment because you've got a major pension fund that's totally backing you. That's backing you. Plus you're way more diversified than you otherwise would be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Way more diversified. So, um, that's the benefit. Like in the, you know, it, uh, in 2020, right. you know, as soon as COVID hit, that was like the first thing that I did was I called our, all of our partners and, you know, most of them are funds that had money across Canada. I said, who's paying you rent? And, uh, and it was all, you know, industrial and rental tenants. So that was my, on my acquisition. I didn't look at any more since that period of time. I didn't look at anything other than industrial or, um, income residential because I knew that's where all the money was going to be flowing for the next few years. Yeah. And that's true today. Smart. Yeah. Good one. So what is it, what works in, in partnerships and what doesn't work? You know, you mentioned alignment as being Mm -hmm. the most important thing. How do you tell if you're aligned at kind of in early stages for people listening that are there, this is resonating with them and they want to partner. How can, how do you find a good partner? Um, well, I think that the, you know, the way that you find a good partner really comes down to like the strength of the deal itself. So if you've got a really good real estate deal in that's not got a significant amount of risk associated with it. And today people are not looking for like entitlement risk. Um, and they're then, so you've got to first have the right type of product. So, so again, going back to that land acquisition, you've got a really good piece of dirt. You're going to, there's going to be lots of partners looking to come to, to partner with you on the project. Um, but you've got to be, sure that you you do your own research so you speak to some other groups that have done partnerships with them already to make sure that you say to them you know was that a good experience or what could you share with me uh, and what was a bad experience um vancouver is such a small market that if you have a bad experience people are going to know about it very quickly yeah um so so finding that partner and finding that mix and, and i think be patient as well sometimes i think we're inclined to just you know pursue the first opportunity that's presented to us but be patient with those partnerships mm-hmm. that makes sense how do you like deep cove i love it i've lived there my whole life so well <laughs> since i was three since we moved to vancouver you must love it i do yeah I, my kids go to the same elementary school that i went to and that's cool um, I coach a little league at the same field that I play little played little league at. Really? So, yeah. So That's I haven't amazing. I haven't really moved all that far, and I'll never move there. Really? Away from there? Yeah. You'll die there. Yeah, it's kind of a good. I don't know. It's a you got you know the mountains obviously in the water, but you know it's a good kind of break from when you're dealing you know like a, a high stress job or if you've you know it's good you know to get your head out of work is to yeah. be in a place where it's kind of like a smaller community. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I totally get it. I'm asking because I love it too. I don't live there. I live in Edgemont Village. Oh, close enough. Yeah, a little bit close. And uh, and my, but my wife and I we talk about it. Deep Cove is like that place that we talk about a lot. Like if we were to move, that would be that would be where. Just you know, she's pretty hippy dippy, and yeah. there's a good scene there. And <laughs> uh, and yeah, just kind of our kind of people, and of course all the natural beauty. And I'm a very passionate boater. Yeah. Um. So it's kind of checks you know a lot of boxes for us. Well, the, like the cove has got, um, 
it's like a place where you still like if you're you know go for, I, I run a lot so if i go for a run like I'll, I'll every time i go if i go past a stranger i'll say hi like it's still like that kind of yeah. small community where everybody's still saying hi to each other nice and the people that move to the community everybody's kind of like welcoming them like it's you're not just like this kind of like outsider that's new to the cove and you know, you know we we everybody makes sure that you we talk and, yeah. and invite it out and you know if you have kids you can't avoid you know getting pulled into that kind of like yeah the community social scene yeah totally yeah do you live downtown or on the hill or no, along the water we're like uh right on the water so we look up like there's a, a, a high quarry rock and we kind of if people are standing in quarry rock they can see my house right across the water from there oh yeah yeah that's so that, cool i've um i like when, when I was 21, I started, or I bought my first condo in Coal Harbor in when I it was like 2000. And, uh, and my goal was to just like flip condos and to, my goal was one day to have a house on the water. So I just kept buying, building and flipping. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got there. It's good to have goals, man. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And when did you buy that? Well, I, the condo I bought, it, well, I bought the condo in 2000 and I bought it for 140 grand, like right in Coal Harbor. Amazing. Yeah. And I, that tells me what it was. I know. It was like right behind the, we built the Coal Harbor Community Center. Yeah. And I was actually working on it. I was like uh, a laborer on the site and uh, I was jackhammering and like all the piles before we built the community center. I'm looking up at these like two towers that look the same as each other. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. So I started to like look into it and I started, I saved up money and uh, like my paycheck from the Coal Harbor Community Center. And it was enough to put down the deposit and to buy the place for a hundred and yeah, like 148 grand. And I sold it a year later for 230 grand. Yeah. I'm like, wow, I kind of like this real estate. <laughs> 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 Tax free too. And I bought my first house in Deep Cove right across in the Raven for 200 grand. Yeah. And then I, uh, but then I built on it. Yeah. So I've kind of, and then I, the, the house that I bought that I'm in right now, I bought in, uh, uh, right after the crash in 08, 09. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good timing. That's timing's everything, right? <laughs> it's timing acquisition. <laughs> you know it. Yeah. So tell me more about your dad. How, how old is he now? Uh, he just uh, turned 68. Yeah. Not that old? No, he's not that old. He no. had us when we were really young. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. For him. Yeah. Spunky young buck. And what was it like uh, building that business for him? Did he have any war stories he shared with you? Yeah. You know, with? like, I, you know, whatever I learned from my dad, I think I learned it from like him just like showing, not telling. And so, um, you know, when he started the company, I'll always remember, like he built this office that was near where the TV room was in our house. And I later learned like why, and so I would, every night he'd be working or doing estimating or doing takeoffs. And so he later told me that he built that office that way with all glass because then he could like see the family while we're watching TV, but he, so he'd feel like he was like part of it, but oh, he'd still nice. have to like put in those long hours for work. Oh, that's nice. Um, and so, um, so it was, you know, it was a, it, it, it was a tough grind for a construction company, but it's all, it was all about like your reputation is as good as your last project, especially when you're so small. Um, he thought after leaving like a big company, he was going to be able to use all his contacts and say, Oh, you know, I'll, yeah, you can build these townhomes for us or these, this high rise. It, everybody said, after you finish your first couple of projects, give us a call. So he, yeah. like, how was he going to get his first couple of totally. projects? It wasn't going to be very easy. How did he? Um, well in the eighties, uh, and nineties, it was, the projects were tendered much more, uh, well, it, that, that's how you could get the projects, right? So they would set a closing date for a project and even, and you'd, you could bid on a, in addition to a school, anybody could bid, um, and the low price got it. They would literally open up the tenders at twelve o'clock on Friday, and whoever was the the low number, you got the project. So it was it was quite 
even though it was a lot of work to put in that estimate, it usually takes about two weeks to put in a bid. Um, that that's how they were able to get the work was just through like tendering yeah. a lot of public. And it sounds fair. Product. It was a fair way to do it. Yeah. Um, I don't think you could do it now because of the way the industry has changed. But um, and that's how I kind of started off in the office was in the estimating side. But it would it was quite stressful. Like you'd be bidding on an apartment building where it could be maybe 12 million at that time to build. And you go into this room and there's 10 other GCs and they start reading them out. And the first one, you know, that you put a bid on, if a person reads it, says so 14 million and you know, your bid's 12, you think, Oh shit, I just, yeah. I'm too, I just lost 2 million bucks. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden they kind of read out and you, you find out you get it and you're not far off. Um, yeah. But that's how you could get a lot of the, the contracting work in the eighties and nineties. And then 2000 that changed. Yeah. Change to what? Well, it's when the trades, it's when it, I see that as like the tipping point in the construction industry where all of a sudden the trades were so busy, they were walking away from projects. Uh -oh. And in, in 2000, just way too much work, not enough labor. And so then the, 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 the selection of a contractor would go more to like a, a construction management where you like get all the pricing and you wouldn't have to competitively tender it. Um, because you just, the trades couldn't give you those kind of that certainty on the numbers and the pricing. So now you kind of see today, which is more like a, a general contractor isn't really giving a fixed price until all the trades are awarded. So there's, it's de-risked quite a bit. For the GC? For the GC. Yeah. So how do they, what are they bidding on it? Cost plus whatever? Yeah. Well, we'd put it like a construction budget together and then we would, and we'd identify what our fees are. And then the, then once we got all the tender prices in, we'd put our, put our fee onto that tender yeah. price. We usually fix the fee. And then if it's not within budget, then the owner can go and find somebody else to build if, uh, if they choose to do so. Um, it is still that way to this day. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, now as us as a company, like I would say half our projects we're building for other people, half our projects we're building for ourselves. Um, as the, that, that's the new kind of contractor relationship, but there's way more developers today that are building in house than there was in, you know, in the nineties or two thousands. Most of the developers are actually hiring GCs. Yeah. Yeah. Is it harder to work for other people to build for other people? Now you have your own deals. Yeah. Um, it is because you know what, like the construction industry is set up for, or the construction developer relationship is set up really f to always be looking for excuses for why you're not done on time or why something costs extra. So it's, it's pretty adversarial from the beginning. Um, and you're always, you know, if there's a delay in the schedule, you, you know, have to put in a delay claim. It's never, you know, it's, it's always, it's a bit of like a, there's friction within that relationship. Um, and so we really have just limited it that we're only going to build for people that we have built with in the past. That we trust that we've been through some unusual market conditions. We saw how they responded and they had our back when the market was, um, changing and we got their back when there was things like lumber increases, We just, you know, lumber went up on one project by a million and a half dollars and we covered it. Um, and we said, Hey, yeah, well, we, this is a fact, but we give you a fixed price and, you know, we'll build for you in the future, but we, you know, lost a million and a half dollars on lumber. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we can make that back someday. Uh, you know what? One day, like it's not going to be one project. It'll just be a couple projects. And I know that that developer is very, uh, probably one of the, in my opinion, one of the most reputable and, and sincere gentlemen there is in the city. And so I know that if we keep building for him for the rest of my life, that we'll make it back. Who is it? I mean, you said certain nice things. <laughs> They're really derogatory. You wouldn't want to yeah, say. Yeah, no, no, so nice. no. There's a guy, uh, and he maybe isn't super well known, but he's uh, his name is Nelson Chan from City Mark, and um, yeah, I know him. he's a uh, 
he's as good as they ever come. He's just a very, very good man. And uh, we built with for him since I think our first project was in 2001. Um, they were doing a partnership with PCI, but uh, he's a, uh, yeah, he's a really good gentleman. And now we're doing development partnerships together too. That's cool. Yeah. What a great partner. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think highly of him too. Very nice guy. Last time I talked with him wasn't much about real estate. It was about, uh, relationships. Oh yeah. Yeah. He cares about people. Yeah. A lot. Well, that's just, well, it goes to show why I would give him a a glowing recommendation. Yeah, totally. Everybody that listens to this should do, yeah, it should hope that they have him as a partner. Yeah, Totally. I wonder, it'll probably get harder. I mean, it's so nice for you to, to sort of draw the line and say we don't need any uh, new construction clients, right? Mm-hmm. And and so nice for your existing to make them feel special. Like yeah. you're not taking all comers. You've got your own growing business uh, on the development side, but that, you know, you're not building for just anybody anymore. That's nice. Yeah. And, and um, that, you know, like we have a good strategy and a good plan, a business plan for what we want to the development side. And that's going to be our core focus for the next five to 10 years. I think one day we might go back to being a GC again. Like we, there's so much work out there that we could continue to grow and be a very big contractor. We could, there's opportunities for us in the United States as well, um, or go to Alberta. But, um, I think that we're going to focus our main attention right now on our development division and, and perfecting that got a good, you know, a good team and good and a, and a smooth running operation. And then I, I know there's that opportunity on the GC side. There's just so, such few labor. And if we can use our experience we've had in, you know, over the last 30, 40 years that we should get back into that contracting business again. So for clarity, the Darwin development is geographically focused, but yeah. the construction side is not. Yeah. Construction side will build um, anywhere uh, throughout the lower mainland. Yeah. We've gone to the Okanagan. We haven't gone to the Island cause the Island is a, is a different market in my opinion. Um, but uh, anywhere else like from the Valley uh, um, Squamish, we've got a big project with uh, the Siegel family up in Squamish right now as well. Uh, but we'll go in. And at one point we were down in Southern California. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So uh, your core values for your development company, I kind of, um, you know, the golden rule sounded like the first one you mentioned yep. about treating people how you want to be treated. Um, what others do you have? I don't know. I, I always like, I think that you could have a lot of different values. And I think that, you know, having like three or four values and you kind of get lost on the number one. So you just focus. So on I one. just focus on the one. Yeah. And I, and I, I, again, like in a way I learned a little bit about speaking to everybody in the development industry and getting some good advice. I think that the, I, I kind of stole the value, um, from, um, I was reading a book on the four seasons, um, and Isidore Sharp, who was, who founded four seasons, that was kind of their golden rule was treat people well, the way you want to be treated. Yeah. And so I thought, well, if that worked well for them and they have an, probably, I think like the best example of hospitality, forget about just the hotel industry, but hospitality period and how to deliver consistently to meet expectations. Um, so we kind of stole their idea yeah. of just treating people. The well, way those are treat. the best ones. Yes. <laughs> Saves you a hell of a lot of time and money. Rip off and duplicate. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have to hire a branding company or marketing company to do that. <laughs> yeah, it must be hard to focus on the development business when there's so much potential on the construction side. I, I understand your role clearly on the yep. development side, but what is your role on the construction side of the business? Uh, my personal role? Yeah. Um, now I would say 
uh, I'm going to be starting to be more involved in the overall like business direction of the construction company. Um, because for, for two years, like understand, we just had a president join our company that is running the development division and that you can't just have somebody step in and all of a sudden you walk away and say, great, everything's going to be running smoothly. So there was a lot of overlap, a lot of like treading on each other's toes a little bit, but now the development division, we have that confidence. We got into a good rhythm. Um, by with Jason being the present is that gives me time to now meet uh, to go over to the construction side to kind of take on some of the responsibilities that basically my father has been feeling for the last, you know, 40 years. Yeah. Um, so Jason and I were primarily focused on the development and then, you know, my father was running the construction side. Yeah. So that's going to free my time up a little bit to say, okay, where do we want to go as a construction company? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. It's uh, it's so nice for you to have that expertise because in, you know, in development, I mean, I'm assuming you're building all your own stuff. Yeah. But on the development side, the the biggest cost part of the equation, biggest part of the cost equation is, uh, you know, construction costs. Exactly. Have that part nailed. Yeah. And so many times in these offices, we, uh, we feel uh, the developers who... Um, you know, don't have it as nailed as you do. Yeah. And they, they most have, most are hiring companies, you know, to do construction yeah. costs are rising and, uh, it always lands, you know, on our laps in terms of getting the revenue required to yeah. have the project make sense at the end of the day. Well, you guys have the most pressure and say the only way for us to fix anything is to charge more money. Right. Mm -hmm. And on the revenue side. So then you're leaning on your sales and marketing team to say like, can we legitimately get more, more money than anybody else has got into this market to, yeah justify this construction cost or yeah. today, like I think the interest carrying cost is going to be a big number. I think you're going to see a lot of residential rental projects not proceed because there's such an impact on the, um, the pro, the, the, the pro forma just from the interest carrying cost. Yeah. Um, but that, that construction side helps us. We also never have to build anything. So in 2008, we decided to focus uh, and, and, and because we can build anything, then what we do is we're, if we're, if we're just a condo builder or a townhouse builder, then if people aren't selling townhomes or selling condos, well, then our volume is going to, you know, be reduced significantly. So in 08, we decided to go after a lot of the work that, um, the pub, the public funded work. So when there's a downturn in the downturn in the market, we see that the government starts to inject money into like infrastructure or to housing. And so they injected a lot of money into housing, especially in the downtown East side. So we did about 15 projects, 15 SRO renovations and new builds. Um, uh, from about 2008 to like 2000 and maybe 11. Um, and that was keeping our crews really busy, uh, while other people weren't really building anything at that time. That's great. Yeah. So you can kind of switch and diversify. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you've, you know, got the development thing figured out, if you were, if someone approached you, a, a new developer starting, you know, from basically scratch, yep. you know, and asked you knowing what you know now about starting a development company, what advice would you give that person? Hmm. I mean, I think that I like to, if I'm giving advice to somebody, I always go to like, okay, well, what do you want personally? Right. And I, I think that's everybody's like, and it's more of like a lifestyle decision, like not like how much money do you need, but how much time do you want to spend on this business? Right. My, my children are my number one focus. And so I, you know, I have breakfast with my kids every morning before I go to work. That dictates what my day is going to be like. And I coach my kids sports. I won't, I won't do any, a job which takes me away from my family. I don't like traveling. So then all of a sudden you're kind of like setting in like that lifestyle, big lifestyle decisions that have to be made that are going to impact your business. Um, 
Because I, like, I despise traveling. If I'm away from my kids for one night, I'm not going to be happy. I'll be regretting it the whole time. So if I'm, so it doesn't matter how good the project is in Alberta, I don't care how much money we'd make. I just wouldn't do it because it, that would mean a night away from my um, family. You're such a good dad. I feel so guilty. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's your, it's everybody's see that that's the thing is that everybody's different, right? No, we don't understand. I just got back from Africa. <laughs> and before that, I mean, right before that I was dirt biking in the Baja. I feel so bad. Yeah. And now I'm jealous, right? Like, I'm going to look back and say, Oh, maybe I, I didn't raise my kids. Appropriately. How old are your kids? Eight and 11. Ah, so yeah. similar. Yeah. My yeah. eight and 12. Yeah. So maybe it's, I don't know. I was hoping you're going to say a different age. No, no. Different. <laughs> but I could be making a mistake. I could no, look back and say, oh my God, I should have got like Not run the, across the Sahara when I was like 43 and I could do it rather than when I'm like 55, my kids don't want to see me. Yeah. Maybe, but you kind of have to figure out that life decision to be find that it's going to change, but then that's going to decide what you want to do as a development company. So when yeah. I made that decision when I was 27, I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. And I'm like, I'm going to dedicate my life to real estate. And so that meant like sacrificing going out with your buddies to go partying on a Wednesday night. Cause then, you know, I would rather work until nine o'clock on that Wednesday night and be up early back in the office working towards my goal rather than, um, you know, going out partying. So it was a sacrifice that I made and the timing was right that I did it. I worked really, really hard as for many hours as possible because I knew I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have kids when I was younger than when I, when I, when I actually did. But, um, but that gave me the time now for me to be where I am. So if I was to give an advice to somebody else, then I, that's what I ask them. Cause some people have asked me that, like, what would you do? You start up Darwin. What would you do? Um, I would say, figure out what you want to do, like your hours and your commitment, like how committed are you? If you want to just, you know, be a, work a couple hours and have not a lot of stress, well then, you know, buy single family homes, renovate them, flip them. You'll make a really good living at it. And it's not that much, that's not a ton of stress. If you want to get stressful, you're going to scale stress because then you put money down, right? Yeah. Um, and people. And people and scale, like, and having, like having 200 employees in my office, that would cause me stress. So now I, that influences scale of my company is that I know that if we have around like 40 people, then that's 40, 50 people. That's a good dynamic. It's not a big overhead and we can do what we want to do. Yeah. Um, so that, it, that's why it's a tough question to really give some specific or general advice. It's it, figure out what you want to do in life and then figure out how your job would fit into that. It sounds like the, someone would ask you that question and you'd fire back with good questions of your own that would, yeah. you know, have them hopefully thinking about the right things and, um, and also you have to figure out why you would do it, right? Yeah. I've, I asked a lot of the CEOs, most of the, most of the people I asked, the reason, the, the, the number one thing that drives them is the profits. And that kind of disappointed me, to be honest with you. I was kind of hoping for like a better answer, right? Um, is that it like, it's, it's the real estate industry is a profitable business, but, um, but for me, it's like that's profits is like, well, you have to make a profit. Otherwise you can't build the project. Mm -hmm. Right. But having the, the thing that gets me is being able to like, actually being, you know, the, the, the creativity side of things, but also building a project in your community where, you know, like what, after I'm dead, there's still going to be families coming to this building or coming to this community center that we built that are going to be making their lives better, like happier. Yeah. And it's going to create, and I want to leave that the community that I grew up in, hopefully in a little bit of a better place than when I found it. Yeah. I see that. I see that. I mean, there's uh 
I can't read you like a book, but I see that. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. I mean, it started sooner with, um, you know, continuing on working since you were 13 in this business that your dad built, you know, and, and wanting to see that be successful and, um, and then affording you, you know, the lifestyle, the family oriented lifestyle that you want for yourself. Yeah. And, uh, and leaving an impact on the, in this community that you obviously love that where you live, that you'll never leave that, uh, you never wanted, frankly, even travel from <laughs> like, it's, no, I know. Uh, it's clear. Well, it's authentic like, too, which is so nice. seems like you talked about alignment in yeah. terms of like good partners. seems like you're very aligned. Yeah. We're aligned. Like there's, um, it's, it's difficult to have a partner that would like, so some of our partners aren't fully aligned with what, uh, like what our thought and approach is and get a little bit anxious about like, it takes us a long time to get projects approved in on the North shore. So they get anxious. Right. Um, but like, I think like if, if you grow up in, like I grew up in deep cove. so if you grow up in that community, you kind of, all my friends are from all different you know, walks of life. Um, got all sorts of different stories, but I coach, like I coach a lot of kids sports and you see, for a year, it's starting to get better, but for so many years, there'd be like families leaving the cove. And so you'd, so you're starting to lose that core, you know, uniqueness of what makes like these communities really great communities. Um, and they're leaving because the, the people that went to, that I went to high school with, they couldn't afford to buy a house. Right. And there was when, when you're either in a house or you're not like, there wasn't very many other options for you to live. Um, and so you kind of started to see that that was changing it. And so, and younger people don't have many options on the North shore. So I think that like, if I thought that I had, that I believe is that if you, if you, if you could go to el- the and public elementary school in your community, you should be able to live there your whole life and bring your kids up in that same ele- elementary school. It's kind of like a, an imbalanced, not to get too philosophical, but an imbalanced society. If be- the only reason you can't have your kids at that school is because you just don't have enough money. Um, and you're, you know, you just got lucky with, you know, who your parents were, but you can't come back to that community. Then you start to see the, the fabric of the community start to erode when it's mm-hmm. all just about people that the only people that can live here is the people that are wealthy. I agree with the fabric idea of the community, how important that is. Um, but that idea of, of should, you know, that's a tough one to solve, you know, yeah. you solve it with, uh, price points, government intervention, um, certainly a lot easier for people whose families have owned real estate in that mm-hmm. community. So they're, you know, the high tide is rising, floating all boats, so to speak. Yeah. But what do you mean by should, like, how do you, how do you solve that? Yeah. So I, I don't mean like, okay, there should be free housing, right? Like, no, because course. that's, because I believe that, you know, I, it like, uh, a value that I had that was, that I learned from my parents was you've got to work hard. Like you got to work hard for what you have. And if, and, and if you, no matter what, if you work hard, you're going to be able to you know, be successful if you, you know, set your mind to it kind of thing. So it, as long as there's the opportunities that you have a diversity of, of housing within your community product types, right? and product types, right? It's, that's the important thing. Like there was such a imbalance in product types. So if you had a town home, a, right? a missing middle, so yeah. if you had a town home that you could rent or like a studio apartment that you could rent in deep cove or, um, you know, or even if it's not deep cove, it's in the Maplewood area. Um, then you've got still got those options available. But when, when the quite literally isn't that housing option available to you, then it's just it, like it's very very limiting for people in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we do a lot of work with BC Housing. I still think that there there needs to be a little bit more, um, you know, a, a affordable housing that the province is actually running and operating within our communities too, and spread out. There's it's got to be way more spread out than it is right now. 
It's to downtown Eastside Vancouver? Yeah, well, and it also people have that um, perception of what affordable housing is. Yeah. Um, that they think affordable housing is comes with, you know, crime and violence. That's not true. Like there's a lot of co-op housing on the North shore in our communities that it is affordable. Um, so I think that just, I think there's gotta be, um, like family oriented, um, affordable housing and we, and we're, we're building a, or we're involved with a couple of partnerships right now, which is going to deliver on that. Nice. Yeah. Are you partnered with any bands? Yeah, well, we're in partnership with the uh, Slaywitz's Nation. Um, we have a, a site that we've owned together on Dollarton Highway, and um, we've been working on that project since 2012. And hopefully, we'd start construction within the next year or so on the first phase. And so it's uh, it's been a I mean it's been a that I mean that those are you know that's probably one of our my most favorite partnerships because of the connection to our community. You know, the Slaywitz's. Uh, uh, reserve is within you know the Seymour area, so we've got a lot of friends and family in common, um, and the decisions they make are for seven generations. It's not like okay, what are we doing right now? It's okay, we've got to think this through. We've got to make every decision within this project a, a decision that's going to be good for the future of our f- uh, families and our community, which is very aligned with what my family's philosophy is as well. Mm-hmm. What else, what other differences are there between that a partnership like that? Cause a lot of people are trying to figure that out. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of, um, bullishness about, you know, the, the potential in partnering with bands from all over, mm-hmm. you know, on development of all, all of the lands or some of them. Um, what's the difference between those partnerships and, and the other sort of regular partnerships with, uh, you know, purely financial partners mm-hmm. like REITs or uh, people like Nelson Chan or whatever. Um, the difference, I would say, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a, and I, I can only speak from my experience mm-hmm. because I know that, um, you know, MST developed court. So Muscoon, Slaywoodtooth and Squamish, they're, they're set up a little differently. Um, but we're doing business directly with the Slaywoodtooth Nation. And so it, I think that, um, I think from so many different levels within a project, um, there's um, differences. Like, um, and I think those are all positive differences. The opportunity to incorporate like legitimately good, well thought out, sincere um, architectural design and cultural elements within a project, like from the scratch, uh, when you have a master plan community, the the opportunities are amazing. Um, and it's not it's not my story to tell it, but it's my, um, responsibility to make sure that as the development partner, that we go through the, the proper process, we listen and we make sure that we educate all of our consultants that are part of the project and understand that like, that we're going to be making decisions on this again, that they aren't just purely driven by profits. Um, and they're driven more about, you know, the, the bigger picture decisions or how are we telling that story or why are we making this financial investment? Why are we going this different direction? So it's really every single decision we're kind of taking a little bit slower to make sure that we get it right. So that's a little, that's a little different. And, and, um, if we're doing development with, you know, one of our larger pension fund companies that they're used to developing for, you know, for, um, many years and having those partnership relationships where there's like clear, okay, this is the step that we have to go through for each stage within our development. Cause they got to have an investment committee to report to. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty clear. I think that with, in, in doing business with the Slaywood Tooth Nation, it's, um, it's much, um, 
it's much more, I almost feel like it's much more of a collaborative partnership experience that we're designing all elements, making all the decisions together. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah. Really fun. Kind of different, you know, bigger story to tell, you know, their story, yeah. like you said, so respectfully and. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, when I think when you go through like a branding process or an exercise to say, okay, what is this project going to be when we take it to the market? Um, it, it was actually a much easier process because we said, okay, well, this project, it's um, the project called the Statlow District is that this is going to be, this is the nation telling the story of their community. That's cool. Um, so, and, um, and so we're excited. We're, yeah, we're going to start probably within the next year or so. Yeah. I think that our job is to learn and listen. Like, I think that the, the thing that was done poorly when I went to the same school as my children now go to is that there wasn't nearly enough education on the history of Canada and the relationships and the true conversation, the true conversation, the true conversation. I think that if you ask my kids now, they could tell you more than any adult could tell you. Um, that's cool. And, and that's an important thing about, you know, um, you know, the, the, it's the truth part of the reconciliation is learning and it's, and it's, it, it, you can't just say, okay, now my kids know because the school taught it. Like mm -hmm. it, as a, as an adult, it's your job to go out and learn and understand what the history is of the country. Cause there's a lot of dark sides to the history and there's a lot of learning and understanding so that when there yeah. is a question of, uh, okay, what is the proper way to say something or what's respectful, what's not respectful. There's, yeah. um, it's our, it's your job not to, to ask somebody say, what should I say? What shouldn't I say? It's your job to go learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, but if you don't know, it's okay to ask. I it think. is okay to ask. <laughs> <laughs> like if you're on the spot, <laughs> it'd been my experience. Yeah. Uh, people don't mind. Yeah. Um, and I'm not very woke and I'm probably going to say the wrong thing from time to time. But, um, yeah. but we were, I was, I mean, we were raised in some, with some serious bullshit in terms of the story of, mm -hmm. you know, how we came to be here and, mm -hmm. and what it was like beforehand. And, um, just goes way, way back to, mm -hmm. you know, playing cowboys and Indians when we were kids yeah. and cowboys were the good guys and the Indians were the bad guys. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the learning has been for me, like just quite a journey yeah. and I was exposed to it through my family, I think mm -hmm. early. So maybe that affected my point of view, yeah. um, uh, you know, in earlier days. And I think a lot of people are learning a lot now and I think it's awesome. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that if you, it's an important step to take in my opinion. And so I can't, we, um, we're saying to like a lot of your, my friends that I have, or even like, it's, it's, it's less as much as my friends that are, that's kind of like my age in their forties. It's more about like the older demographic, the older generation, um, that had like the, the, um, you know, some opinions, some strong opinions. And it just was because they were uneducated. Totally. Yeah. Just ignorance. Yeah. I agree. I'll say ignorant. You just say uneducated. You're more polite. <laughs> <laughs> You're so nice. You don't even swear. You're a better dad. You just feel terrible. <laughs> well, you can bring up some other stuff. Maybe I maybe won't be nice. <laughs> I'll get you going. Well, tell me about, um, being a dad. Um, you know, you're obviously very passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Any, um, any thoughts on, I mean, I've heard what you had to say about, you know, what I love about, you know, what's said about kids and they spell love T I M E. I yeah. think that resonates with you yeah. for sure. Um, you know, you're eating breakfast, breakfast with them every day and coaching little league. Um, you're happy for what they're learning in school, mm -hmm. you know, and not, not all parents are, yeah. you know, especially the, the generally speaking, the woke thing is getting pretty wild. Yep. Um, but at least with regards to 
you know, or, or indigenous people and whatnot, you're very happy about it. What else have you figured out about parenting? You seem like an expert. Oh, no, I'm not a couple expert, things. No. <laughs> um, I'm pretty honest with my kids, actually. Like if they ask me some stuff, sometimes I find myself like being too honest and telling them too much details. I, I always tell them about the things that I did when I was younger, that if I had, if I could do it all over again, I would, I would. And the decisions I made, I, I, I don't, um, you know, my, my son said to me, he's like, what's your biggest regret? Actually, now he could answer that. So my biggest regret is I said to him, I didn't try hard enough in school. And so I had never graduated and, um, high school. Yeah. And so he said, yeah, I, I failed, I failed a course called career and personal planning. <laughs> <laughs> they gave Seems you, ironic. Though. I know it is ironic. And so they, uh, they, they gave you like four hours to go job shadow. And so I, so I went golfing <laughs> and so then I did a report on being a professional golfer and then my instructor rejected that. And I said, well, I want to golf. So I went golfing. And so I was kind of like a bit too like cocky or like, yeah. um, and so I didn't pass it not thinking that was going to affect my graduation, but it did. So no I didn't graduate, uh, because I feel that course. So I say to my boys, I'm like, biggest regret. They're like, okay, we didn't graduate. Cause I want to go to university. I wanted to experience going away to university. And I said that by me not graduating, I closed that door. And so don't, you know, you want to keep as many doors open in life as possible. Um, and that's one that I wish I didn't close. Yeah. Um, that's so I'm, honest. I, I love it. And now I'm happy the direction it went. Cause I, I, and I knew since I was like 13 that I was going to be in construction, but I wouldn't have mind going away to university and having a little fun. It was so fun. I loved it. <laughs> I got to tell my kids. I was like, go to, don't tell my wife or my kids. It was the best years of my life. I know. Well, I, I was right up there. I also got this book out and the first thing I flipped to, cause it ranks all the U S universities. I want to go to the U S and I, yeah. I, it uh, was the number one party school. It was ASU. So I'm like, I want to go to ASU cause it's the best party school. I think and it it's still like, is. <laughs> <laughs> it's but I, it was my own, um, stupidity that I didn't, go there. Yeah. Uh, my mistake. Um, uh, so I say to my kids, like you will make mistakes, try to make sure they're all just little ones that yeah. they're not big ones that are going to, um, have an impact on your, your, the options you have in your life. That's pretty honest. Yeah. Really honest. I mean, yeah. they, at eight and 11, I wonder, you know, their understanding of it evolves, I guess from, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They may not fully get it now, but like, uh, their opinion of what a mistake is, is yeah. you know, cookies from the cookie jar or something. Probably. I think, I think it's good that you see your parents fail. Like, I think that's really important. Yeah, you I see your, about it too. You, your parents fail, you feel them feel disappointed. They'll feel sad. So I just tell, I tell stories about like, if my son has a bad soccer game or thinks he has a bad soccer game, I tell him that one time I remember that I had a bad game where I hit the crossbar and our team lost by one. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I always remember that moment. I'm like, it sucks. You yeah. feel bad, don't you? And yeah. Like, like, okay, I did too. Yeah. We're, that's you're human. <laughs> my favorite conversations at dinner is like, what was amazing today? Yeah. And what was, what just went horribly, like yeah. really bad. What, how did you mess <laughs> up so bad? And it, uh, I find it like bringing humor into it and having yeah. a laugh about it is like, takes all of the sort of negative energy out of it. Yeah. And, and you know, whoever had the biggest sort of mess up of the day is, and it's usually me, yeah. um, you know, gets <laughs> the most laughs and kind of wins, so to speak. Right. Well, yeah, the, um, I'm honest with them about work too, because I don't want to sugarcoat it. There's some times when I come home and like, I'm, and I said, I, you know, I had a tough day and, uh, you know, the, and a tough day I, for me is when like, I'm not present with my kids when yeah, I'm like too. having dinner with them or playing catch with them in the backyard. And I'm thinking about that issue relating to work that I hate those days. Like I don't have a ton of them. Um, but I, I remember those days and, and, and you try to 
remember why you felt that way or what situation you got yourself into that created that situation. But those are the worst. Like if you can't be present with your kid because you're thinking about something else, then that's like, that's alarm bells that you need to make a change. Oh, totally. Yeah. My eight year old daughter says, daddy, what are you thinking about? You know, my mind waters <laughs> away. My resting bitch face like comes over and she can pick it up so fast. I'm so bad at that. I had to develop like a mechanism to help myself with it yeah. where when I'm driving home, uh, no matter which bridge I go across at the midway point of the bridge, I stop thinking about work, no more calls. Yeah. And at that point, from that point home, it's just not even a podcast music. I'm thinking about home so that when I arrive that I can be present. Otherwise, um, you know, I roll in hot sometimes, yeah. you know, and I, and it's like, may as well not even be there. No, I know. But, and you have to find your way, your kind of like way to get rid of that stress. I, I run home from work quite a bit. Um, kind of running was a way for me to actually like think and have exercise at the same time. But that like, if I, if I go for a run and I always run with my phone because I want to, not because I want to listen, I'd never listen to music or anything, but it's just, I'll have an idea that I don't want to forget about. And so then I'll email myself that idea. So the next morning I'll have these ideas that came to me when I was running. That's cool. So it's like a stress relief, but then also an end of day way to, you know, gather your thoughts. End of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Home from work. Yeah. I yeah. Get it. And then in the next morning I'll run from, um, home to yeah, well, work to home, then home to work. Yeah. So tell me about your clothing. Do you have, you're wearing <laughs> such a nice suit today. Do you have a suit at work or do you just, like, yeah, no, I like, I, and I've, I've worn, I'm, I usually would be wearing a tie, but I've worn suits and ties like my whole life because when I started in development is that I, um, I didn't feel like I, I, I needed to make sure that people would take me seriously. And so I'd always wear, uh, suit and tie. Um, and then it kind of just stuck with me and I kept doing it and, you know, during COVID too, when I was in the office, yeah, nobody else was there except for me. <laughs> You're in a suit and tie? Well, yeah. No and me, my dad and I were in the office that he would be like, you know, you know, a hundred yards away from me or something like that, or 50, 50 yards away from me. But, um, we were the only two that would come to the office during COVID. Everybody else was working from home. Yeah. I never stopped going to the office. Yeah. But yeah, it was this, it was like this, it was, the, it was about like my perception when I was younger and then, and I still do that now, but it could, it, sometimes it might give people the wrong impression. That I take myself too seriously. No, man, you look good. I mean, it's, uh, I've done it. I don't really do it much anymore. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I get it. What I, what I like about it when I do dress up now, I'm just lazy. It just, it makes it easier. Like when I'm want to get my point across maybe yeah. in certain situations, whether I might be speaking to a group or in a big, important meeting. Um, I just, it's just easier. People just take what you're saying more seriously when you look a certain way, <laughs> when you're meeting their expectations visually. And I could dress like how I'm dressed today and I'd be saying the same stuff, but yeah. I'd have to say it twice or three <laughs> times and be much more eloquent to get the same point across. So, <laughs> so in that way it's efficient and effective, but you're such a good dad. I I'm looking at the time thinking you got to be coaching little league here in 35 minutes. Yeah. So I want to get you on your way, Yeah. but thanks for coming, man. I had so much fun. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Hopefully I said something that was <laughs> you did. interesting. I think you 80% of what you know, you probably take for granted now, but, um, it really, most of it really resonated with me and there's yeah. lots of people that really are going to appreciate it and learn a lot. Oh, good. So thanks, man. Thanks yeah, for coming. Thanks. Appreciate it.